What is a VTuber? Okay, so it's a person who <laughs> is like a YouTuber, but they never show their face. They're like an anime persona, and they they talk in like weeb speak. Which is, I don't know how cool that is, but whatever. Isn't it like a virtual, like they have like little like virtual like personas that do, yeah, like virtual reality kind of thing. You are a 3D rig, so it it hooks up to your camera and it tracks your motion and some of them are better than others. So it like tracks like your reactions and stuff. And they've gotten like really, really cool with it. So like if you do a certain gesture, it'll do like an animation. Yeah, it's pretty cool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, like one that's really funny right now is like um, one that I've been watching just because she does reactions to funny videos. And I'm just like, I want to turn my brain off. But she like turns her head to the side and it just gives like a little ghost coming out of her mouth like an anime. Just like, uh. I'm just like, that's funny. Nice. But I think all of the men who do this or mask presenting people, I think what they do is they pitch shift just a little bit to sound a little bit more... Like what I'm doing right now. Like just a so little they sound deeper? real. They sound a little they sound a little more. Wait. They sound that's... a little more. <laughs> it sounds like a trans guy who hasn't learned what to resonate his voice yet, and so is talking really the back of his throat to overcompensate. Yeah, I mean I think it's I think a lot of the femme ones also pitch their voice upwards because they want to sound like Neko Chan. Uwoo. Well, I think part of it is a- like anime girlfriend. They have like 50,000 viewers per stream. Like they stalkers are a real concern. So I don't hold this oh, against yeah. them. No, it will. But yeah, this is my new pitch for, um, for voice mod because, um, they just had this voice enhancer thing and the noise reduction is so good. Like I had my ceiling fan just going like clunk, 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 clunk. Couldn't hear it until I speak into the mic. And then you can only hear the, the clunks because it has to pick up my voice. The noise reduction <laughs> is that good. Hard. All right, get hyped, everybody. We got a new theme. Welcome to Library Punk. I'm Justin. I'm a Skullcom librarian. My pronouns are he and him. I'm Sadie. I work IT in a public library, and my pronouns are they, them. Hello, I'm Jay. I'm a music library director, and my pronouns are he, him. And we don't have a guest, but we do have a new theme song. It was done by Audrey from Radio Free Tote Bag. <laughs> Fucking whips. Thank you. Fucking Thank whips. Thank you, Audrey. And maybe we'll have new art by the time this comes up. Who knows? It's super cute. It's so good. I'm so excited. Yeah. Jay, you started off with the ALA stuff. Maybe I'll keep some of that in, but. It's banned books week. It's all garbage. (laughs) You you want to take it from the top? Of of the banned books week uh, debacle? Yeah. Just in case, like, it doesn't make sense when we were. Uh, I have not been on Twitter at all, like, for two weeks. So just. Mm, Me either. Apprise me from the top, my dude. So. ALA were some clowns about Banned Books Week, more than usual. Well, at least they didn't do the, like, accidentally Islamophobic thing that they did a couple years ago. I don't know if y'all remember that, where they had the person holding the thing up to their face and it made it look like a hijab or a niqab or whichever one that is. Okay. 
Yeah. So they didn't, they, it wasn't, is was that when the burka? Okay. It wasn't yeah. that levels of like clowning around. But, and so the challenge is actually still a thing, I think. They just took the tweet down because people were clowning on them too hard. So basically what they have is this like, they did like a hashtag asking banned books or something like that, where you like recorded a video and you had to hashtag it, of course, because it was a challenge. It was like a giveaway. Of like a time where you faced censorship or st- stood up against oppression or something. So this is the part that I saw. Yeah. Yeah. So they okay. did that. Uh, and it was like a chance to win a book by an author. Right. And people clowned on him real hard to the point where they deleted it is basically. And, you know, standard Band Books Week discourse. Is it Band Books Week? Yes. Oh, okay. That That's why. They were doing that instead of actually like, you know, helping libraries and library workers where like literally I think it was three major libraries this week had to close because of bomb threats. Probably more, I think. Yeah. One of them was in um, was in what Salt Lake County. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like f- at least three like major libraries this week alone had to like close for a day and various days because they received like bomb threats and stuff. But no, ALA's like, lol, enter a cute challenge, hashtag asking banned books. Book giveaway, whatever. Book giveaway, buy a journal where you could read all the banned books. I saw it when it happened and I was just like, okay, whatever. Like, I, who cares? This is just like a day that ends with why with ALA's social media stuff. Well, they haven't been, they haven't been clowning for a while, like to the degree that they normally do. They've been kind of quiet over there in ALA land. Well, when you say clowning, you mean like being like aggressive about things, but they've just been like saying stuff that no one wants them to say. Like they, they never stopped that. I guess I just like don't hear like the degree to which they'll do something and then we all get mad about it. I haven't seen a lot yeah. of that recently. I guess there's not been like the discourse. Hasn't been galloping, you know? I guess so. I mean, it's just banned books week, the week we're recording this. Lord, help us all. We should have had Emily on this week. (laughs) Why didn't we plan? Or just wait, or just held on to it until this week. Yeah. Don't don't fucking tell me when to edit. (laughs) I wouldn't dare, Justin. (laughs) We're doing a movie episode because I'm pretty burnt out. And I did not want to do an episode. And I was like, we got to do a movie episode. And then Jay gave us a very good movie, actually. And I am I have a lot of questions about are all documentaries like this now? Like, are they just all like the guy from my own private Idaho and the guy from (laughs) I just recognize these people, but I don't entirely know their names. Evan Peters, the guy who plays uh, Lipka, is from like American Horror Story. Is that where I know him from? He was in a he was in a Marvel movie too. He uh, I he looked was him in, up. He's a um uh who's the fast one? Qu- Quicksilver. Quicksilver. The Flash. No, not. Oh that's, yeah, Quicksilver. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Quicksilver. Okay, gotcha. okay. And then he um, is, then, isn't he? Yeah, and then the our main main guy that's Barry Coogan or fuck you say his name, and he was um, he's been in a lot of like A twenty four films, like he was in Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is great, people should watch it. <sighs> he was in Green Knight, and they took they got oh he was also in Dunkirk, but Marvel got my boy, and he was in Eternals. 
And I was like, no, why? They took my, look at how they massacred my boy. <laughs> like, because I love him. He's such a good actor. He's like Irish. Have I ever told you guys how when we get bored, my wife will do like this movie challenge where it was like how I'll like give them an actor and they have to get from that actor to a Marvel movie in as few jumps as possible? Oh, so it's like, you know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Bacon, or except from Marvel movies. Yeah. And it just keeps getting easier and easier. So we just stopped because it was like, if you could get it to makes me Robert, too sad. Robert Downey Jr. or like, like literally everybody. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't Kingo, but who is the only name I know because that's the one people were clowning on on Twitter was like the name Kingo. But yeah, that's Barry Coogan. And I don't remember, I don't recognize the other two guys. Udo Kier was one of the, was the fence. Okay, we should say what the movie was. Yeah, let's let's, let's just actually go into what the movie is. Yeah, yeah. You want to do this or should I? No, you should. Right, so the movie is American Animals, which came out in 2018. It premiered at Sundance, I believe. And then fucking Movie Pass picked it up and distributed it. Like, you know, the swan song of Movie Pass was like releasing this incredible movie, weirdly. And the director is, oh, what was his fucking name? Bart Layton. And if the other, you know, film hoes in the audience who like documentaries might recognize him as the documentarian who did The Imposter. So Bart Layton is not a like drama fiction film director. He's a documentarian by, by trade. And The Imposter, it's also very good. And it's about this family whose like son went missing. And this like, and they they aren't French, but this random French guy not the right age or even like the right ethnicity shows up and is like, surprise, I'm your long lost son. And they just go with it, which is the plot of Titan also. (laughs) Wait, wait, did, was this? It won a BAFTA. Was this the one with the dude from Downton Abbey or was that a totally different movie where he's in person? No, this is, no, The Imposter is a a straight up documentary. Oh, okay. Okay. Never mind. It's not like a recreation or a docu, like, no, it's just a documentary and it won like a BAFTA. It's an incredible documentary. It's, it's really good. I highly recommend it. And so this film, which is a fictional film, is but with documentary elements in it, is by a filmmaker who primarily does documentaries. Okay, that was my question is, is this like a documentary, a docudrama, a fictional documentary? Like where, I didn't understand where reality began and where the movie, the documentary like ended. So I think that's the point. Because one of the one of the reasons I love this documentary movie film thing so much is because how it plays with like memory and subjectivity. And I feel like I mean, and this is true with any retelling of anything, but people's memories of stuff are gonna contradict each other. Um, they might even contradict their own retellings of it years on. And by blending a sort of fictionalized, you know, this is based on a true story type of fiction film, but actually not only having like talking head interviews in it, but like literally there are scenes in this where the actual person and the actor are in the scene together talking to each other. 
like I thought that when was, I was wild. When I was in the movie theater and that scene happened, I was like, oh, oh, this is – oh, this is going to be good because that's a very like Iranian new wave kind of (laughs) thing. This kind of docudrama, docufiction has precedent, but it's an Iranian film primarily Um, in the Iranian new wave, which Iranian new wave is great. Um, But – because the like state censorship in Iran has always been pretty tough. It's like been pretty hard. A lot of uh, filmmakers in Iran were like starting to question what does it even mean to make a film and what does it mean to be a film and what is truth and what is depicting reality and all of this stuff. And so they started playing around with it a lot. And then so you get these films that sort of very much – blur and question that line between what is documentary what is real life and what is a film i actually the one i'm most familiar with and i have the criterion edition of it is called close up at least the you know english translation where it's about this actual dude who committed fraud by pretending to be the iranian director makmobaf and cast a film and everything and like got caught and like got sent to prison and stuff like he committed like identity fraud and stuff and so they made like a a a dramatized retelling of it but starring all of the actual people like they didn't get actors to portray the people they just got themselves but it wasn't a documentary they filmed it as an actual film like as actual like you know, dramatized retelling, but just with the actual people. So it wasn't like talking head, this is what happened type of documentary. That's wild. It's so good. It's structured like a documentary or it's structured like Uh, a movie? Close up is structured and filmed and written like a movie, like a fiction film about something that actually happened, but it stars the actual people it's about as actors. that that happened with... um Audie Murphy, like Audie Murphy. Oh, right. In like that um, Dolomite film. Audie Murphy was a Medal oh, of Honor recipient. Oh, I thought you said recipient. Eddie Murphy. I thought yeah, you said Eddie yeah. Murphy. When he was in when he was in World War II, Eddie Murphy won the Congressional Medal of Honor for his <laughs> services, and then he and then he played himself in movies about him as like fifties propaganda. Oh, so. Nice. Yeah, Audie Murphy plays like himself as an eighteen-year-old, as like a thirty-year-old, but he's playing himself in these in in these movies about like what got him the Medal of Honor. Yeah, there's also this just regular documentary that doesn't quite do this, but it does a little bit. It, where it's an actual documentary film, it's not one like this. Where it's like, is this documentary? Is this a a dramatized retelling, but it's called The Act of Killing by the documentarian Joshua Oppenheimer, which God bless him for having <laughs> that last name. And it's about the um, Indonesian like genocide mass killings in like 1965 and 1966, where they like met one of the guys who was like kind of responsible for a lot of the killings. And they made like little dramatized little movies with him about it like they did like a um like kind of like recreations but where he would then play himself and like they made like they put like fit like oh you're gonna do like a neo-noir section of it and and whatnot where it's like 
they just like met this guy and they were like, oh. And so this like blending of like, and Herzog, you know, Van Herzog, the king, the goat, greatest to ever do it. His whole thing about documentaries is instead of being a fly on the wall, we are like the wasp that stings or something. Like you're not supposed to blend into the background when you make a documentary because the an objective truth doesn't exist. It just doesn't. And so like stirring things up and Herzog does this thing called like hyper reality or or something where it's like by sort of pushing the limits of the quote unquote like natural of like oh you're just gonna film someone like telling you about something he like in grizzly man there are scenes where he made them redo it like dozens of times until it got to be this like robotic weird like vibe and reaction of it and then that's the take he would use so, like, Herzog is also very big about, like, kind of doing straightforward, regular documentaries, but the way that he makes them is him, he knows that just by his own presence of what he chooses to film and how he chooses to edit and all that, that is subjective. And so, how do you play with that to show something? What were you going to say, Sadie? Oh, I was going to say, maybe we should back up and actually discuss the premise of the film real quick. And and why we're talking about and this why, instead of why me. Why we're talking about it, yeah. Going yeah, off yeah. about the we'll, we'll, just, we'll just start with the recap, I think, at a certain point. Yeah, that was all to, to say, Justin, there is no line of like, is this a documentary? Is this a fictional film? The point, I think, is that it's blurring those lines and that is part of the story that it's telling which is about an actual theft heist quote that happened assault yeah assault yeah at transylvania university in kentucky which hilariously they call transy like in real life the website's even (laughs) transy.edu That's like one letter away from being a slur. Like, I want to go to Transy University. We'll see who cancels who. (laughs) I want Jordan Peterson to teach at Transy (laughs) University. These like college students, some of which did not go to to Transy, but one did was like an art student or something, stole slash attempted to steal some rare books, including some Audubon prints. From their library special collections. Two large Audubons, a misprinted edition of Darwin's Origin of Species. And, which is where the title comes from. And Hortus Sanitatis, which I had to look mm-hmm. up. Yeah, and the Audubons were like the most expensive. Oh, by far. Books in like any library special collections. In or the like, world. They, the, are the, they are the most yeah. expensive books in the world. Yeah, and those are at this random university in Kentucky. Um. (laughs) This is my whole problem with this whole premise is like anyone who knew anything about like stealing books would know you wouldn't steal these books because they're all accounted for. Yeah, all the Audubons. All the Audubons, all of these versions of Darwin, maybe the Hortus Sanitatis. I couldn't tell how many versions there are out there. But I mean, like, they have to go appraise it at one point. And the appraiser would immediately be like, 
this is stolen. It yeah, has there's a list, you know? Yeah. Also, University of Illinois has a lot of Audubons. And uh, my job as a graduate student, while also working at the reference desk, was to, quote, flip the bird every week because they had, like, the real Audubons back in the special collections. But then they had, like, prints in a big case, like, that's in the movie. And it was my job every week to change the bird out on a schedule. And we <laughs> had, like, the flamingo um, that they show in the film. So I got to, quote, flip the bird every week with the Audubons. It was fun. And so then they're going to like steal these and then sell them and make a shitload of money. And they botch the heist. Like hell. Well, they drop the Audubons, but they get the Darwin. Well, let's back up. Let's let's back up a little bit. Because these are two guys. Two, two guys. And they want to... They're just sick of this town, man. Look at this. It's 2004. This Being is very, white is so hard. <laughs> this is very Midwest emo. And it's very much like this fucking town. There's like a scene where like there's a, a shopping cart on fire and they're like, I'm just waiting for something to happen, man. I don't know what it'll be. You know, something's going to come along. Like where a lot of the talking head interviews at the beginning are like, they're just good old boys. Like <laughs> that was I weird. Would- yeah. <laughs> I loved the professor. Professor that was fun. Old, he was definitely fucking Kentucky in on accent. it. That's my theory. Oh, yeah. This this motherfucker <laughs> knew from the beginning what they were doing. And he's just like, nah, man, they they were great. I don't know what you're asking me about. <laughs> the, the thing that I loved was just like it literally came because one the one student there observed that the only per the only guard on these incredibly expensive books was just one librarian in a locked room. Yeah. And that was their entire like impetus of like, we're gonna do this book heist. We're gonna steal the most expensive book in the world. Which why didn't that book have more security is actually what I'm curious about, which, you know, I want to well, go even, into like the carceral state and special collections here in a bit. But like, why did that well, book not have like lasers stolen, around it's it? It's going to come back to you. That's why. Because everyone knows it's yours. And it just goes to show how very unseriously they took their own plan because they didn't actually like – at least in the film part of it, didn't seem to actually do that much research into like beyond how much does this book cost? Like they didn't know what the word provenance was when they showed up at the collectors. Right. So like they, it wasn't real to them. It felt like. That is also just like something that amazes me about this whole story is that they kind of, for the most part, a little bit got away with it for a while. They didn't really Mm -hmm. start getting caught until they went to go get it appraised. I'm surprised like they got that far. Because yeah. quite honestly, if 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 your two volumes of Audubon get hijacked and someone gets assaulted, how big is the community of people? It's 2004. People got email. People got AOL I instant mean, messenger. email is what they traced them back with was based on the emails that they sent. Yeah, but even that, I mean, like. If if you go up and say like I want the provenance on this, they're gonna like look at the stamps inside of it because someone's fucking stamped any of these books, not for like that library, but like this is from the private collection of Justus von Hostus, and it's like oh okay, we know where that one was. It was at the University of Transylvania. I worked in a special collections. I illicitly learned the passcode to get into the special collections as a graduate student. I knew that all of the most valuable books were in 
a small room that was not locked called the vault. And it's always I called the vault. <laughs> and I could have taken easily at any day, I could have taken twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars worth of untraceable books. Easily. Like, why didn't you just get a job in special collections? Instead and just of the like grocery store. <laughs> And just like slip something into your bag. It's so easy. The people who always get caught in these things are like people who are like, I'm going to heist. I'm going to go in. I'm going to like have a lined jacket and shit like that. Any graduate assistant could walk in and just be like, oh, this is, um, you know, this is illuminated manuscript of Josephus. Okay, fine. That's worth like $5,000. No one could ever trace it. Well, that's why I'm like, they didn't actually like, it wasn't actually real to them. And like, that goes into the whole white privilege, like middle class shit too. And like the movie does go into that. But yeah, it's just. Which I'm glad that it touches on that. Yeah, me too. And yeah, that was just the Mm -hmm. thing that got me is they were just so clearly swallowing their own bullshit when there's just so many easier ways to do exactly what they are doing. Like not only are like these books incredibly expensive and rare, they're huge. It took, <laughs> two, of, took two of them to carry it out, like to like fucking run across the, the library because they didn't know their exit path. Correct. Like it was, if wild. our listeners have never seen an Audubon or an Audubon print before, it's they're like as big table. as your couch. Yeah. yeah they're huge. They're huge. They're very heavy. I've had to carry them. Yeah, like one one of the quotes that I pulled that I thought was funny was that they say in the film are, there aren't exactly books that teach you how to steal art. And they say that to show that they were watching heist films, like the old school, um, is it, oh God, it's one of the old like Kubrick films. I, I think that's like black and white that's about a heist or gamble or something. But they say even in real life that they they watched a lot of heist films, and they even do the whole uh, Reservoir Dogs, Mr. Yellow, Mr. Pink, yada yada yada. I don't want to be Mr. Pink. You know what Mr. Pink is all about. Mr. Pink is gay. I gotta do my rowing machine. A fucking like social network. Fucking. He was always an entrepreneur. I hated every fucking person in this documentary. (laughs) The Except for the insane me. guy who who probably orchestrated all of this and might have lied to all of them about ever going to Amsterdam, about ever oh, meeting the mark. Yeah, he's Just the like only person I. He's the <laughs> yeah. only person I like. Everyone else, you're an idiot. You know this guy was clearly crazy. <laughs> you all screwed Fell up. For it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like the thing that got this is me like was... your crazy friend that buys you weed. Like you don't you don't listen to that person on matters that could like send you to jail. <laughs> you know. The thing that got me was him sitting down at a library computer and literally typing like yes! how to like how to plan a heist. And I'm just like Jesus so fucking Christ. Like I was like, put Tor on these computers. <laughs> like, right? Like it's early two thousand. Well, he could be like, researching. And, and yeah, and like there's all of that, like, you know, intellectual freedom shit to go with it too. But like, I mean, intellectual like, freedom is the reason this happened. Oh, but just, it's just the irony of that. Like, you're in a library using a library computer to figure out how to heist a, a library book. I mean, I assume that was creative license. 
I assume so too, but it was still a I nice touch, funny. I think. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is a good touch. That is funny. I like how they all got into like fights the night after the heist where they're all like, I can't handle it, man. I'm going to get into a fight with these frat guys. I'm going to crash my car into someone else. I'm going to steal a hungry man frozen dinner. I thought that was how they were going to get caught was they were all going to like turn themselves in. But no, they go to the auditor and they get caught. It was just such white boy bullshit. The entire time I'm watching this movie, I'm like, I knew these kids in high school. I didn't go to like college. But like, you know, it's like, I knew these boys in high school who would have thought that they were this cool and would have gotten away with this and it would be actually easy. And like any poor kid can tell you that if you're going to lie, you got to really commit. Like if you're going to, if you're going to go in, you're going to go in hard and you're going to go in fast. And they did not do that at all. And the thing is, there there's so. so many other stories of like stealing from special collections where a smash and grab does work. Like... They were like, we can't do it at night. There's there's no way to get in. But like the the guy who stole like um, feathers, the, the guy who stole like feathers because he had a, like an obsession with making rare lures. He just like bought a hammer, smashed in, grabbed these. He didn't grab the extinct bird corpses. He got the ones that he knew he could sell because of the rare feathers, grabbed them. They didn't fucking figure it out for months because no one checked to see if anyone would steal those. And he made these lures out of them and sold them for like thousands and thousands of dollars. Because like, of course, if you steal a dodo skin, everyone's going to know, oh, that's the dodo skin that was at the Smithsonian. (laughs) But he just bought, you know, he just got the the feathers and is like, oh, you know, I just, I got a skin, luckily, you know, from a collector. And that's how I made these lures. That's what they should have done. They should have gone for the Darwin. They should have gone for uh, the Josephus. They should have gone for illuminated manuscripts. They should have just gone small game and and got a job. And again, one librarian. That wouldn't have been cool. Though. Yeah, I guess I, I I like the whole kind of like fight club aspect to this where they're all like, was mm. it just the other guy telling? I, I don't remember any of their names. Was it just crazy guy telling me how things went or was it really me? And I'm like, man, you must have had a great lawyer. But like, I mean, they even do the like talk to each other in the bathtub thing that I think was in fight club, but was also definitely in the talented Mr. Ripley. Well, I mean, in the sense that like. The actual people, they're like, oh. Yeah, okay, I know. Yeah. But like playing off of that kind yeah, yeah. of like vibe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did like how it ended when they were like, oh, yeah, nobody actually really knows if he talked to a Mark in Amsterdam. And how it like pretty much ends with Lipka, I think it was being like, you'll just have just to take my me. word. Yeah, you just have to take my word on it, I guess. And it's like, that's the whole fucking movie right there. See, part of me is like, he's fucking crazy enough that of course he flew to Amsterdam and like part of me is like yeah of like like not that I want to believe it part of me is like oh no he's probably he probably did it like he's probably that much of an idiot where he flew to Amsterdam and like met with crazy people (laughs) maybe yeah not that that it would have worked but that whole scene was so vague that it makes me wonder sort of like did he just Go to Amsterdam, not meet any... Because there's there's sort of this really long scene where he's just really high and he's going around the red light district. And I think maybe the filmmakers have a little bit of information they can't tell us. 
and just assumed that's how he spent all his time in Amsterdam and then came back. That's what I think, because I I worked with historians who have had to redact things from works and have left the footnotes in. And so you have to sometimes read between the lines. So I think maybe documentarians do that, too. That's what I'd like to believe. Yeah. But yeah, so when they actually do commit the heist, they're going to do it by dressing up as old dudes and doing like stage makeup and stuff, which they actually do go to they like i actually think it's very clever that they like time it like around like when they're having exams i think that's stupid really because old people show up in the summer no no i'm not talking about the fact that they're old i'm talking about oh, the, the, co- the, the cover timing story. of it okay that it's gotcha. when they're that that's they're having that they're in exams i thought that was like oh they're like bro, bro we all got exams that day and he's like Exactly. And they're like, oh, but yeah, the old people thing They, I love in the review, it says that uh, like they look like they're in a Beastie Boys music video, <laughs> but they actually go to the library. And this is I thought was the funniest fucking thing in the history of the world. Surprise. There's a board like there's a meeting <laughs> in the special collections where there's four librarians in there now. They're having like a, board, a cheese meeting board. Or something. cheese board meeting. I, I yeah, worked in special collections. We just bring food in there and just hang out. That's why there's four. There's never like four people sitting in the conference room unless there's like food. It look it's a cheese board. Yeah, game. yeah. So I I loved that touch where it's like fuck. There's librarians in there having a meeting. God damn it. Um, and so they they ditch it and then Lipka like I see I don't know because like you had to have a meeting to be able to go into the special collections anyway. So I'm assuming that they had made the meeting appointment. Mm-hmm. Why would they be able to make the meeting if there's going to like the appointment if there was going to be like a cheese board meeting in the special collections? It doesn't I don't matter know. because like you you're We're, expecting one person to come in. It doesn't stop you from having a meeting like. We would have people in there for like three days, and it's like we still got to have our meetings. Okay, um, I've never worked in special collections, so um, not like any in any formal capacity. But then he does end up making meetings, so they go back the next day. Sans looking like old dudes, and one of them has to stay outside because he's a student there, right? And they're not dressed as old guys. One of them's a getaway car driver. And so it's, you know, Evan Peters, American Horror Story guy, is going to go up and and take care of the librarian and then call our little econ University of Kentucky major person to then come up and get the books after he's taking care of the librarian, which Evan Peters is a dick and doesn't do that. And calls them up before they take care of the librarian. And their little, like, stun pin doesn't do shit. And then they, like, you know, tie her up and and all this stuff. And this was like watching a horror movie when I saw it in the theater. Like, I remember being in grad school and them telling us, like, if there's going to be, like, an on-campus shooter or something, where we're situated in this building, we're going to be, like, the first to get got. You know, like, that kind of stuff. And, like, when you learn of, like, the actual occupational hazard of being a librarian in certain settings, like, in a university. And, like, I've not worked in special collections, but – and I don't think I was transitioning yet. I may have. I don't know. But just, like, you know, vaguely, like, hearing about hypothetical violence against people in your profession versus actually seeing it was a little, like, and especially just, like, 
that the the actress who plays BJ Gooch is was in Hereditary, by the way. If if you've seen Hereditary, if you're watching this being like, who is she? She was the like friend of the dead grandma in Hereditary who also ended up being like a a, a hail payment witch. But like she's great in this and like how they have her like continuing to be like, why are you doing this? This is hurting me. Like they keep her vocal during that entire scene. And it was just like freaking me out uh, the first time I I watched this. And then the fact that like the boys the entire time, it's freaking them out too. And they keep apologizing to her. And I don't know if that's actually how that went down. And then they keep like showing how the actual people, when they like do the talking heads with the the four boys, which they're like in the thirties now, like they're all out of prison now. They each got like seven years, I think. They all seem very, like, it fucked them up. Like, they seem very remorseful about at least that aspect. I think they think that everything else was them being stupid. But that is the aspect where they hurt this person that seemed to fuck them all up. Lipka straight up starts, like, crying almost in one of his little talking head interviews when he talks about it. Which, again, I don't know how much we trust crocodile tears or anything but they still you know get away with it and stuff i was reading uh so bj her name is betty jean gooch and she goes by bj gooch apparently she retired like a year or two ago like very recently and she had been approached and they all had been approached like multiple times to do a documentary about this or do movies about this or whatnot and she just like never wanted to talk about it she kind of just wanted to move past it which i like don't blame her like one, like having that stolen under your watch, like I would just, I would just feel guilty, even though I knew it would not be, have been my fault. I would just be like, oh no, but I was the one, you know. Um, but also just like how humiliating and traumatizing an experience that must be. So I don't blame her. But apparently just the way that this filmmaker was going to approach telling this story, not only was it the first time that any of the four guys were like, oh, okay, this is a person that we feel like is not going to be like, oh yeah, cool, heistville, these college students got away with it. But that was going to show how stupid they were. And yet they still got away with it, kind of, for the most part. But like, that was bringing in these concepts of thinking about like the class issues of like, why were they doing this? And, you know, talking about like that every part of this like went wrong and wasn't quote glamorizing it or sensationalizing it in any way. Although the trailer certainly does, but that also BJ Gooch, this was the first time when the filmmaker like approached her that she felt comfortable enough to actually want to talk publicly about it. She had not wanted to before this, but because of, again, how this filmmaker was approaching this, she felt comfortable and actually wanted to, instead of was just instead of just going, oh, all right, I guess I will, like made the active decision. And this is why this doesn't feel true crimey and gross to me. It actually, this was like this woman who this happened to was, did this with like agency and like an active participant instead of it being like, Oh, well, she's just going to have to talk about it or they're going to talk about it without her or something. Sadie, is your lights? That, I just noticed that and it must be my camera because the light in this room is stable. I don't know what that was. I think I think uh, Sadie's uh, haunt, got a ghost in their, in their house. 
a strobe ghost. Yeah, strobe ghost. That that should be our our, our library punk band name, strobe ghost. <laughs> Hell yeah, spooky season, baby. Um, but yeah, like she wanted to talk about this, and they only feature like one talking head interview with her, and it's very short. And yeah, so in in an interview, and I think it was actually in the thing I found of um, her retirement announcement where they talk about it a little bit, where she said she found the experience of being in this film and participating in it and stuff to be very cathartic, actually, and that she can talk about it now and she kind of got it out of her system and she can more move past it, but that she got to make the decision of when she did that and mm-hmm. like got to trust the filmmaker for it. Yeah, I, I really liked that they saved her until all the way to the end. Because, you yeah. know, you see the perpetrator, or, you know, the guys who who planned this out, you know, kind of in and out in various ways throughout the film. And then at the very end, like you finally get to hear it from the victim's point of view. And I really like how she summed up how they, she still to this day thinks that they didn't actually know what they were, were doing or why they were doing it rather. She was like, yeah. I think that they don't even understand why they were doing it. And then, you know, it cuts to them kind of talking about some of the like class privilege stuff. But, you know, I, I really liked how, how that, that, that was handled. But yeah, I like, I like that she had agency in it. Cause that's like my number one problem with true crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like in the, um, I believe it's the article from Variety talks about the, like how often these people got approached to have documentaries or Mm -hmm. films made about this and that they turned them all down until this instance, which I think one speaks to the, the craft and the perspective of this documentarian and filmmaker and like how he approaches telling these kinds of complicated stories. Um, But yeah, so, Oh, sorry. I was going to say, can we talk about how um, they, they weren't like, prosecuted for assaulting her because the stun pin wasn't a dangerous weapon. Yeah. So like one of the the reasons why I thought it'd be interesting to, to talk about this film beyond just this, you know, happened, this was involving a library was the types of questions it raises about libraries and the police state. Yep. <laughs> um, and not just like, Oh, thieving, you know, stealing things with special collections, but just like, you know, I think in the notes I say, screw the Audubons. Let's talk about the safety of library workers. Yep. <laughs> you know, she was, quote, the only security of these things. And yeah, so the way that they, they think they're going to get her is by stunning her. And that'll just knock her out and it won't hurt her. And she'll just be out. And the stump pin doesn't do shit. And they still, like, tie her up and, you know, gag her and all of this other stuff. They do not get like in their prosecution. They they each get seven years in prison, but they do not get prosecuted for hurting her at all because the stun pin is not classified as a weapon yeah. or something like that. Which, so they actually didn't get prosecuted for harming a human being at all, only just the books. for like stealing books. Well, and which like, if <laughs> let me let me see if I can find what I was looking at earlier, but like. I, I would be interested in seeing what the actual charges were against them because I think there's the assault with a dangerous weapon, but then there's also like 
they zip tied her limbs together and duct taped her mouth and dragged her around the floor. Yeah. And like, there's got to be some sort of assault charge for that alone, right? Like, you can't zip tie somebody and duct tape their mouth and like in everyday life and not have the, you know, and if you just reported to the police, there's, they're not going to be like, oh, there's no dangerous weapon involved. Like, there's definitely like shit there. So I would be interested in seeing. They were not prosecuted for inflicting physical harm. Really? That makes me wonder oh why right-wingers also tend to have, like, lots of zip ties whenever they go to protests. I imagine maybe there's a legal loophole they expect that they can exploit. Arthur, what do you think? He's not a lawyer. He just wears a tuxedo because he's, he's a party boy. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right, Arthur? He looks very offended. But yeah, like, I I think an interesting thing that is relevant to some of the things that we talk about on this podcast, beyond just me going like, look at how this movie portrays truth and reality and information, which is what I'm always so interested in, is like, you know, thinking about like, the relationship between library collections and libraries and like the police state and like the carceral state, right? Mm -hmm. Like, one, they don't actually get persecuted at all for hurting the librarian. Like she goes through this horrifically traumatizing thing and there's no legal repercussions for that. It's just because of the books. Yeah. Yeah. Like she could stand in that room for the rest of her career and realize that- And look at those fucking Audubon. Those those books were more valuable than her life. Yep. As decreed by the justice system. I would probably throw up every day. And the way they portrayed her- is as a object person, as a saying like, these are our bestest books. These are the books that are so important. These books make my life have meaning. So I imagine that's uh, might play into it too. This also makes me think about like, and Sadie, that's a good point. Like the justice system determined that those books were worth more than her life. And like thinking about like, what is the purpose of special collections? You know? Like obviously, like please leave that whole pause in, Justin. <laughs> yeah, don't. don't we're, take, we're Arthur just, just like, like crawls behind with perfect timing. <laughs> yeah, like not to like say that like special collections has no meaning or that they're bad, but like thinking about like you know historical memory and preservation, yes. But then like which universities and special collections have what beyond just like oh we're gifting this thing to you, but then like are those valuable? Because of the role that they play in our cultural memory and history, or because of how much they're worth. I remember when I worked at the University of Utah, and like the University of Utah and its special collections actually has a lot of interesting stuff about the history of religion and not just Mormonism, but religion in general. Because of like the Mormonism ties, like, oh, just the study of religion is like a big thing there. And I was told, like, even during my interview when I worked there, that the vault part of the special collections, the things that were in the vault together were worth more than the entire Utah State Capitol building and everything inside of it. That's so wild. And that was, and the Utah Capitol building is made of like marble and has like golden shit on it. And so Mormons like, go that, like hard framing, on buildings. I mean, you know, not to sound like a traitor, but like the temple is really cool. Looking, oh no, especially I've, at night. I've been inside a temple before. They're they can be really cool fucking buildings. Anyway, yeah, not to digress. Yeah, not to digress, but that like the way that we frame special collections sometimes is like 
not like what role does this thing play in our cultural memory, but how much is this thing worth? Yep. Oh, it's old and rare. It's worth a lot of money. And so like, yeah. So it's like, it's, it's, it's like, it's people outside of libraries who are then determining the worth of the things that libraries hold. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm saying that like the way I I mean it, but. And and it's like, I think I put in the notes as well. It's like in a neoliberal university institution, which is, I feel like where a lot of special collections are. I don't know how often there's like a special collections outside of a university. Religious institutions probably have a very big one. Um, My first special collections experience was volunteering at my Catholic university special collections. And it was just lots and lots of copies of the Vulgate. I mean, that's a university. That's a university still. Catholic university. The the Mormons have a rare book library. I know that for a fact. But I mean, like, you know, like outside of like a university or college setting. So I feel like when I hear special collections, I think of at a college, right? Of any flavor. And so like in a neoliberal university, uh, how, how did I phrase it in the notes? Like, what's more important to a special collections to a library, the monetary value or the historical slash cultural value? And in the neoliberal university, is there a difference between those two things? And like, is something only as like historically and culturally important because of how much money it's worth or something? And like, is that the only reason why you might procure something is like the monetary or like aesthetic value it'll bring upon the university, like with these like big purchases? And I think another point that I made in the notes, at least regarding like libraries and like the carceral state, is like especially with like a special collections and like a special collections is where all the old, rare, expensive shit is. Well, maybe not even necessarily old because of the regular shelves have a bunch of old shit on them too, but they're not quote rare or worth money or something. So it doesn't matter if they get, you know, stolen or whatnot. But even regardless, it's like any type of library collection, but especially special collection, that's like a boundaried collection, right? Like a library collects things. Like, so those are like of a specific collection that is a border that is being put around objects both physically and like monetarily and conceptually and all yeah. yeah and borders necessitate policing and like i know like one of the things i hear about like when people like places get rid of library fines is that the cost of collecting fines of like hiring collections agencies or doing any sort of like uh, punitive measures costs more, like is more than it's worth. And so that's a reason to get rid of fines, which is like really good in your proposal to be like, by the way, this is costing us more to actually get them than they, we would get back, yada, yada, yada. But like framing it in this sort of like, like our collections and keeping things in our collections and making the concept of a collection a collection like that is a border that has to be policed and sometimes literally um and so like when things are stolen from special collections it's like why do we care about getting them back is it because of the money or is it because of like the importance they might play in any historical or cultural memory i think it's neither actually because oh yeah <laughs> what i think about special collections is that they are they they do have rare materials. They do have unique and local materials that are important to doing like the actual thing that special collections are supposed to be good at, like 
preserving local history, that sort of thing. But the main reason anyone creates a special collections and archives is to document the political history of an institution. And that means big donations. Could you so could you repeat everything that you just said for me? I have no no idea what I said. No, the special collections are inherently a political um, collection because they are not just about what exists for local collections, and they're not just historical local collections, and they're not just rare collections. The The main reason you would create a special collections and archive is to create a political history of the institution itself. And so the real reason that you create these things is to say that this collection, this particularly this space, this special collection space is the space of John D. Fucksmith. And he is the reason why this university is the university that it is today. And he could have donated nothing. It could be nothing about money. But I think special collections and archives are particularly developed in order to create to create a place where you invite rich donors to come to and say, look, this is a place of prestige. Wouldn't you like to be represented here? Why don't you donate all your shit to us before you die? And, and so, like, it has this... Pol- yeah, that aesthetic it, value. It has this well. political value to it. Yeah, it's not so much that anything in it is worth mm-hmm. anything. It's so much that it's like, this is an institution. And, and, and that is a political statement. And I think that's what special collections are primarily about. Yeah, this is like, especially with the universities, it's like... I, I was talking about this when I still worked at UNH because there was the thing of like, oh, they're so proud of being an R1 and the role that the library plays in that, but then they don't actually pay or value the the faculty and the other workers who make that and that they only care about the prestige and the aesthetics of having these like signifiers in the university, but they don't actually care about sustaining those or what they do or what it takes to make that. And so it's like things are in the, so if I'm understanding what you're saying, like things are in the special collections, not because they care about what the thing is at all, but only what sort of acclaim and like image it gives the university itself for political, because everything is political, but like, you know, please give us your money reasons. That and it's like, we're putting your garbage in our very, very special room in the hopes that you will give us (laughs) money. You're a special boy. Basically, yes. <laughs> and Will, and like, I think just how that all ties into like the whole cult of the book and books mm-hmm. being tied to intellectualism and, you know, like prestige. And I'd rather read books on print and not stare at us, you know, that whole like bullshit thing that happens around libraries too. So what do we think about how this film portrays the book as object pretty normally i would say like do we think it like i i don't feel like it's i don't know if i feel like it's buying into the like the book is as a physical object is sacred like it's just like these are books and they were worth money but i feel like it's not like it doesn't go like like when it shows you like the autobahns right it just shows you that like this is a stupid heist because like these books are easily identifiable. Yeah. So like, I think I actually really respect the film for not necessarily focusing on the books with a capital B 
so yeah. much. Like it, it rarely spends any time focusing on other oh, books. Like right? it doesn't really do that much at all. So I, I don't know. And yeah, I, I, I actually really like that about it. I do like I like that too because it like it kind of just shows like yeah the perspective of the dumb shit boys who are doing this. Like literally to them, yeah. it was just it was just capital. And there are some scenes where the the bird kind of theme comes into it. But that's part of the reason why I liked that they kept the librarian's interview to the end mm-hmm. and why I feel like the scene where they assault her to get the books is so harrowing because there's not a whole lot of reverence for the books. You don't even fucking see they don't zoom the fucking in on Darwin. It. Yeah, you, <laughs> you barely see the spines. So it's just like... I feel like that's why that's that scene was just so starkly harrowing because it was really like, Jesus fucking Christ, do you think these books are worth hurting this woman like this? And they're like apologizing to her as they're hurting her. They're like, well, we didn't want to hurt anybody. And it's like, buddy, you're doing it right fucking now. And you're committed. So yeah. you're going through with it. But like that, it, it was just the whole shattering of this construct that they had built up throughout the film of it being a, a a dumb fuck heist. And her like little interview at the end also wasn't focusing on the materials. No. It was no. her as a person. It was and, her like, as a person. Like why yeah. did they do this? But it was like her experience of it and not librarian as the person who was taking care of the books, capital B. Like seriously, like Autobahns are really cool. If you got to see them, they are really cool. They're really goofy looking. Audubon would add like three wings to things sometimes. I think he would forget. I would love to see those. <laughs> They're really cool. The flamingo slaps. I love the flamingo. My favorite <laughs> is the bald eagle who's like ripping a fish head off and it's like, ah! like it's really hilarious. They're cool books. If you ever get a chance to see an Audubon, they're nice. But like, you know, they like smash the thing with the Darwin and you don't see the Darwin until he like takes it out of his backpack after he threw up everywhere in the van of like, I got the Darwin. And he doesn't even open it. You don't even get to read what's on the spine. It just looks like an old, like shitty library binding book almost. And then that's all you ever see of them ever again, besides like it hiding under one of their dorm room beds. And that's it. And that's it. So good, good, good job movie. Like for not like fetishizing that they stole books from a library that like it focused more on like all of the people involved and not the objects involved. And it didn't treat the librarian like an object. (laughs) Okay. I think we've got more than enough. We've done our due diligence. (laughs) Go watch this documentary. It's really well done. Yeah, I love the little scene where they're imagining how the heist is going to go and like a little, um, what is it, a little more conversation, whatever that Elvis song is. And it's got like cool like heist movie editing and they're all suave and shit. Like I like that scene a lot. But ultimately they're just throwing a couple of rare books into fucking bed sheets and running dropping out of the building. Them yeah, dropping down, them in a like stairwell. Yeah. <sighs> the minds of teenage boys, I swear to God. Yeah, it's really good. And like, if you like Barry Cogan, if you like Aaron, Evan Peters, they're both excellent in this. And if you like, don't like true crime, you'll like this because I did. This does not feel like a quote true. Like it's about a crime that is true that happened, but it doesn't feel 
like it's in the participating in the true crime genre if that i don't know if either of you got that same vibe i don't know anything about true crime i literally the only crime podcast i listen to is lie cheat and steal where they're just like do you think it was worth it nah this dude was an asshole like it's just like it's like rogues thieves and bullshitters you know i love that kind of stuff i have a book that's like villains thieves and rogues and it's just like people from the, the yeah. early modern period who just were like highwaymen and stuff. And it's just like, yeah, that's fun. Nice. Yeah, that's not true crime. <laughs> true yeah. crime is to make you like afraid so that you call the police or the Paw Patrol or whatever. And you're just like, oh, please save me, carceral state, until it comes for me. Yeah. This movie barely even talks about the carceral state. Which I think would be interest- interesting if it had gone into it a mm-hmm. little more. But I understand what its yeah, focus yeah. was. And I think it does its focus well. It doesn't focus on the like, now let's do a trial and now let's do this. It's like more of a like psychological <laughs> view of, of this, which I like. Um, so yeah, go check it out. It's on like Hulu. If you've got Prime, it's on Prime. It's probably on a million other things. It's on DM Justin. Movie Pass is coming back. So <laughs> yeah, go watch this to celebrate Movie Pass coming back. <laughs> Dear God. And yeah, I'd be curious to see what other librarians, especially special collections librarians, like think of this. BJ Gooch, if for some reason you're listening, I know you're retired now because I read your little retirement like news thing on transy.edu. I hope you're doing well and away from all this bullshit and enjoying whatever money you got out of this movie. If any of our fall like listeners like know BJ Gooch, like tell her we hope she's doing well or something. Uh, <laughs> or if you also work at Transy. I'm never going to stop calling it Transy. <laughs> Do you know how many times during this I've almost said a slur like by accident? Like a lot. It's so cute and funny that it's called Transy. It's like Transylvania University, but it's in Kentucky and it's almost a slur. It's funny. See, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious like if, if any of our listeners like know BJ at all. Oh, and I'm supposed to close it out now? Since when? I don't Since know. Since when? I mean, if you want me, I can just like start talking about the fact that I finished Infinite Jest this week and I'm going to Okay, I'm going to close it out. Here we go. Good night.